0: A reading from Matthew 18 and from Acts 12. We will start with Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. These are God's words. In that hour came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? And having called to him a little child, he set him in the midst of them and said, Amen, I say unto you. Except ye turn and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall cause to stumble one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a heavy millstone should be hung around his neck, and he be sunk in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of stumbling blocks, for it must needs be that the stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block cometh. And if thy hand or thy foot causeth thee to stumble, cut it off and cast it from thee. Good for thee it is to enter into life crippled or lame, than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the fire eternal. And if thine eye causeth thee to stumble, tear it out and cast it from thee. Good for thee it is to enter into life one-eyed than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. See that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that their angels in the heavens do continually behold the face of my Father who is in the heavens. What think ye, if any man have a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains, and having gone, seek the one going astray? And if he should find it, Amen, I say unto you, that he rejoiceth over it more than over the ninety-nine, not having gone astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in the heavens that one of these little ones should perish. And now Acts 12. Now about that time Herod the king put forth his hands to harm certain of the congregation. He killed then James, the brother of John, with the sword. Having seen now that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize also Peter. These now were the days of unleavened bread. Whom also having seized, he put in prison, having delivered him to four squads of four soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him before the people. Indeed, therefore, Peter was kept in the prison. Prayer, however, was fervently being made by the congregation unto God for him. When now Herod was about to bring him forth, that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Guards also before the door were keeping watch over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood near by, and a light shone in the cell. Striking now Peter on the side, he woke him, saying, Rise up with haste. And his chains fell off his hands. Said now the angel unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. He did now so. And he saith unto him, Wrap on thy cloak and follow me. And having gone out, he was following, and he knew not that it was true what was being done by the angel. He was thinking now he saw a vision. Having passed through now the first guard post and the second, they came unto the gate of iron leading into the city, which by itself opened to them. And having gone out, they went on through one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And Peter, having come to himself, said, now I know truly that the Lord hath sent forth his angel and delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the people of the Jews. Having considered it also, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is called Mark, where many had gathered together and were praying. Having knocked now at the door of the gate, a maidservant came to answer named Rhoda, and having recognized the voice of Peter in her joy, she opened not the gate, but having run in, reported that Peter was standing before the gate. Now unto her they said, Thou art insane. Now she kept insisting it to be so. Now they kept saying, His angel is what it is. Now Peter continued knocking. Having opened it, now they saw him and were amazed. These are God's words. You may be seated. may be wondering how I can possibly preach both of these passages in a single sermon, but the reason that we are reading them is not to investigate their full meaning, but rather because I want to spend today looking at a particular hermeneutical principle which will become important as we get into John 3. This principle is an approach to interpreting Scripture that emphasizes understanding key terms within the larger sequence of thought the full progression of ideas, the broad context of the passage. There's nothing very unique or extraordinary about this, but it is important to understand, and you'll see this especially in John 3. This thought sequences approach is in some ways just an application of the analogy of faith, the principle that scripture interprets scripture. We are reading two passages today, precisely because of this principle. You probably also remember the principle that confusion precedes insight. In other words, if something is puzzling, it might be a puzzle. We have looked at a couple of important examples of this in John. We've looked at what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. And we've also asked why John records that the temple was 46 years in building. But sometimes... Things are puzzles to us, not because the Holy Spirit intended for there to be a puzzle in the text, not because he intended for us to learn wisdom by teasing it out, but rather because the original author and his readers knew something that we don't. They took something for granted that we don't even necessarily have on our radar anymore because we live in such a different time, such a different culture. We don't speak their language, we speak a very different language and so on. You can see just how easily this could happen, just how easy it is to find something confusing that other people understand implicitly if you imagine even yourself, ten years ago, being sent a social media feed from today. In this feed from the future, you see a based take from someone that Lord of the Rings is woke now, And someone else can't even about eating his bugs. And there are simps and chads and whiteness and almond milk. Even the words in this feed that you understand, you don't know what they mean. Now imagine if you were Matthew or Luke or any other author of scripture trying to understand this feed. This feed from 2,000 years in the future instead of just 10 years. Imagine that you've had it translated into Greek how comically inadequate such a translation would be. Or even if they read English, it would be their third or their fourth language, they spoke Greek and Aramaic, they don't have nearly the deep grasp of English that you do. And even you from 10 years ago could not make head nor tail of some of what you were reading. So even if they had dictionaries or lexicons from the early 21st century, these would not necessarily help all that much. So much of the meaning of words is dictated by cultural context and by how those words are used in the moment rather than simply by straight definition. To understand the words that people use, you have to understand the people. You have to understand their culture. You have to understand how they communicate, not just the technical definitions of words. This is the kind of situation that we are in when we read ancient texts. In fact, it is a testament to the grace of God that the Bible is so comprehensible to us, so easy to understand a great amount of the time, given what a remarkably different culture we live in, what a remarkably different language we speak, how remarkably different our conventions around communication are. The reason this is important is that there is a kind of approach to Scripture which, Certain people are tempted to, and I'm not saying any of you are necessarily, but you will probably come across this. This approach essentially recognizes the difficulty of interpreting scripture, but then its solution is to turn to deep technical analysis of key words in the original languages. If there is a difficult passage, these kinds of exegetes, these people who work in this method, they won't start by trying to trace out the flow of thought in the passage. They won't ask how each idea connects and what they contribute to the overall meaning, what the overall meaning even is supposed to be. They instead pick out the words that they find hard to understand, and they open their lexicons and their concordances, and they start dissecting. They look for technical definitions. A very common example of this that you can find in uh, New Testament studies is the word love, you may have actually seen this. There is a, a faulty theology of love that even flows out from it, which we will to some extent investigate when we get to John 316. What happens is rather than looking for patterns of thought in Scripture that reveal what love is, the word studies approach will dissect the specific Greek terms, and in Greek there are three terms for love, two of which are the, the primary ones, philia and agape, you've almost certainly heard of agape at least. And they will come to all kinds of confident conclusions about what these mean, and therefore what the particular passages mean where they are used. For instance, you may have heard that philia is brotherly love, while agape is a self-sacrificial godward love. But you only have to read John, who is, I think, the unquestionable expert on love, to see that this distinction does not always hold true. If you look at John 21, 15-17... So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, lovest thou me more than these? And the word here is agape. He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And the word there is philia. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? And again it's agape. And Peter saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And again it is philia. He saith to him, Feed my sheep. Then he saith unto him, The third time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? And this time he uses the word Philia. And Peter was grieved because he said unto him, The third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And it is Philia again. Jesus saith to him, Feed my sheep. Now, clearly, the way that Jesus asks, do you love me, using agape, and Peter responds with, yes, I love you, using philia, indicates that in actual usage, these words were interchangeable. It boggles the mind to try to find some kind of code to what is going on here, where they're just using two words to refer to the same concept. And we'll see the importance of recognizing that different words can refer to the same idea when we get to John 3.16 especially again. But for now, I'm not really trying to make a point about the meaning of love in Scripture. I'm really just wanting to make a point about looking up Greek or Hebrew words and getting the wrong idea about what the passage means where they are used. Looking up terms in lexicons and reference works just gives you English synonyms for the Greek and the Hebrew counterparts. They don't unpack the concept for you, and they don't tell you how that concept applies in the specific passage that you are reading. For instance, we aren't actually any closer to understanding what the biblical concept of love is simply by looking at the definitions of love, or even by seeing that agape and filia are used interchangeably. You can't derive the concept of love as God would have us understand it by consulting the dictionary definition of words. In Scripture, the concept of love is fleshed out in actions, in metaphors, in comparisons, in laws and commands, and so on. I am going to preach on what love is at another time. I'm just using that as an example here. I want you to see that the basic problem with the word studies approach is that the Bible is not a technical document. It is written largely by lay people, and it's written for lay people in common language. And this means that rightly handling it, rightly interpreting it, is a matter of understanding how people communicate their thoughts, not of how linguistic scholars classify words. It's not that the words aren't important. Rather, the words are tools for putting together the concepts which the author wants to convey. It is the concepts behind the words and how they fit together that is what we are really after. Rhetoric is just as critical to the biblical text as grammar. So focusing on one or two key terms, especially in the way that places so much emphasis on the author's choice of words rather than on his choice of concepts, is like focusing on one or two puzzle pieces when someone asks you what a jigsaw puzzle is displaying. What's the picture? Well, the individual pieces can be important, but it's the overall way that they go together that actually tells you what the puzzle is about. What I'm saying really is that good exegesis needs to look at the flow of thought in and around the passage you're investigating. How do the ideas connect and relate to each other? Because once you know the key ideas, you can ask how the author and his original readers would have understood them. For instance, is he drawing on previous biblical usage, even if he is using different words? If he's not using exactly the same words, he can still be referring to the same idea. But another critical question to ask is, did people in that time have certain assumptions about the topic? For instance, the word woke usually means something quite different to how it is frequently used today. Or the word sick or wicked can mean essentially opposite of themselves, depending on whether they are used seriously or colloquially. In a nutshell, biblical theology and contextualization culture and language are far more important to understanding any part of the bible than technical word studies now what does this have to do with the passages that we've read today well i want to look at these passages and apply this idea i've given you a lot of theory very dry technical ironically technical theory i want to actually turn this into practice i want to look at how this applies to the texts that we've read today and take the analogy of faith, comparing scripture with scripture, in order to draw out something that's actually interesting, something that gives us new information that we probably haven't seen before, something insightful. I want to show you how to apply these principles in a way that makes a couple of puzzling passages clearer and gives us a fuller understanding of the spiritual realm, which is so often the focal point of bizarre interpretations and weird ideas. The point of connection between Matthew 18 and Acts 12, of course, is that they both talk about angels. More specifically, these two places are typically interpreted as references to the existence of guardian angels. In Matthew 18, Jesus says of the little ones that their angels always see his father's face in heaven, and in in Acts 12, the disciples try to convince Rhoda that it is not Peter at the gate, but rather his angel. I want to emphasize that I'm not dogmatically opposed to the idea of guardian angels, but I do not think that this is what these passages are talking about. I believe that conclusion is a result of a word studies approach to the text that doesn't keep an open mind about what the term angel can mean. It only looks at lexicons and doesn't look at how scripture is speaking, especially using the analogy of faith. And... It also isn't actually following the thought sequence and especially the humor in the case of Acts, but rather reading a wooden technical definition into the passage as if the Bible were a wooden technical document. And also without regard for whether the idea of a guardian angel was even something that the authors of Scripture would have had in their heads. I've seen some commentators say that the Jews of Jesus' day did believe in guardian angels, but as far as I've been able to tell, and I have done some research, I have not done extensive research, at the very best, it is careless to say that the Jews believed in guardian angels. It is true that they believed in angels who were guardians, but these angels were guardians of nations and their kings. They were like the prince of Persia and Greece that we find in the book of Daniel, and indeed like Michael the archangel, who was the guardian of Israel. But the Jews had no concept, as far as I've been able to tell, of angels who guarded individual believers, which is what the term guardian angel has come to mean today. The modern idea of the guardian angel did not exist in the common theology of Jesus' time, just like their concept of a guardian angel, meaning the, the guardian of a nation, does not exist in the common theology of our time. So to say that the Jews believe in guardian angels is very sloppy. What I think these passages are both talking about, just to tell you where we're going, is not angels as we typically understand them, but rather deceased human spirits. The thing that originally led me to this interpretation was an observation by the late, great Steve Hayes of Triblog. He once pointed out to me how Acts 12.15 resembles what is called a crisis apparition. A crisis apparition is a surprisingly common phenomenon, some of you may even have experienced it, in which a recently deceased person appears to a friend or a family member, usually in normal bodily form, and usually within about 24 hours of them dying, and often the person who sees them does not realize that they have died. They don't realize that what they're seeing is an apparition at all. According to research by David Hufford, about 30% of people have experienced such an apparition. And that figure rises dramatically for certain cohorts, uh, like combat veterans. Combat veterans, over half of them, 58% of soldiers involved in combat, have had a comrade appear to them after they've been killed. Now... Along these lines, let me make a brief aside. It's not connected to our text exactly, but a huge number of people in the West have various kinds of encounters. So we've got 30% of people who have seen crisis apparitions, for example. But these are not the only kinds of things that happen in people's lives. People have all kinds of encounters with supernatural beings or supernatural events, and tragically they think that they are the only ones. They're afraid to mention it to anyone else because they're afraid that people will think that they are crazy. For instance, if you present the symptoms, so-called, of the mara or night hag or succubus or whatever name you want to give it, if you tell a psychologist that you are experiencing a terrifying presence in your room, sometimes sitting on your chest while you're waking up or going to sleep, many of them, most of them, in fact, will diagnose some kind of psychosis. And yet somewhere around one-fifth of people actually experience something like this to varying degrees and at varying times in their lives. And the same diagnosis of psychosis was true for a long time of crisis apparitions, where someone recently deceased appears to you. And it's only more recently that this has become accepted as too common, too normal, to justify treating it as a pathology. It's not that they can explain it, they still think that there's something going on in your head, I guess, but they don't treat it as a psychosis anymore, because otherwise they'd have to be treating so many people for it. But of course, most people don't know this. And... So if they have some kind of supernatural experience, they often suffer through it alone, thinking that they're abnormal. When in fact, other people they know might very well have gone through the same thing. And it is a tragic and shameful pastoral failure that churches of all places are not somewhere that people who have these experiences can turn for answers. Most pastors have nothing intelligent to say about this. In fact, I dare say most will assume that There is some other explanation and will not even seriously entertain the supernatural explanation or that supernatural experiences are common. I think you'd find that the majority of evangelical pastors would be completely useless and you'd have to turn to something like a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox priest, which is a great shame to the evangelical church. Now, this is, again, rather beside my main point, but I want you to know that if you or someone that you know has experienced something like this, some kind of strange supernatural experience you can't explain or you have just questions about these things redwood is a place where you can ask them where you can talk about these things and receive thoughtful careful answers that draw on scripture and on common experience to explain these sorts of things now returning to acts And the story of Peter standing at the gate, I was initially quite skeptical of Steve Hayes' interpretation that this might be a crisis apparition because I wasn't aware of any evidence that angelos, angel, was ever used this way in the ancient world. So my initial approach was, well, let's do a word study. Does the word angel, can it be used to refer to some kind of spirit apart from an angelic spirit, what we normally think of as an angel? I always assumed, as you probably do, or maybe did, that angels are supernatural beings, a little higher than us, well, sometimes, as we know, sometimes the word is used in Scripture just to refer to normal human messengers, but those guys are alive. However, as I was considering this question, I was providently, providentially reading Acts twenty-three, eight. only a day or two later, and I was immediately struck by Luke's comment that the Sadducees... Say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. This is where Paul is having his dispute with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In his commentary on Acts, C.K. Barrett makes the following observation about this verse, quote: "The statement that the Sadducees do not believe in angels or spirits, if taken in its most obvious sense, has no parallel, and indeed can have none. For the Sadducees accepted the authority of the written Torah and the Pentateuch contains many references to angelic and spiritual beings in whose existence the Sadducees must have believed. It is not claimed that the Sadducees denied outright the existence of spiritual beings. They could not have done so, only that they denied the existence of an interim state in which those who had died existed as angels or spirits, these being more or less synonymous terms. It is indeed impossible, in light of what we know about the Sadducees, to interpret Acts twenty-three, eight in any other way. The terms angel and spirit are clearly being used synonymously to refer to the disembodied human spirit between death and resurrection. And in fact, although many translations say the Pharisees acknowledge them all, the term used here properly means them both. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them both. So in other words, Luke is saying the Sadducees not only deny the resurrection, but even the continuation of human existence after death in the form of the angel or spirit. The the Pharisees, by contrast, acknowledge both the resurrection and the angel or spirit. I should note in passing that I am not suggesting we get wings when we die. Barrett also notes the comparison with Matthew and Mark's discussion of marriage in the resurrection. You probably remember that the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, they come to Jesus with this dilemma that they think proves their case. They think this puts Jesus in a bind. They ask him, if a woman marries a man and then he dies without giving her children and she marries his brother as per the law in order to get children in his name and he dies as well without giving her any children and then she continues this process seven times, having seven husbands and none of them give her children, then whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus' response is, Is it not for this cause that ye err, that ye know not the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, curiously, both Mark and Matthew specifically say that we rise from the dead like angels in heaven, not like the angels in heaven. When I started investigating this, I assumed that it referred to ministering spirits, um, the, the ministering spirits of which Hebrews 1.14 speaks, for example. And so, when I recalled this verse in my head, one of the first places I went was to that verse, and in my head I recalled it as, we shall be like the angels in heaven. But it does not say this. It says, like angels in heaven, and there's no definite article. I think... A subtle point is being made here because leaving off the definite article changes the meaning slightly. It no longer refers to those things that aren't like us, but could rather just be a general term for those who inhabit heaven. Moreover, in Second Temple Judaism, which is what the Judaism of the time is called because of the Second Temple, the book of First Enoch was very influential, and in First Enoch 51, 4-5, where it speaks of the righteous believers in the eschaton, it says, "In those days, the mountains will skip like rams, and the hills spring like lambs, satisfied with milk. And they will all be angels in heaven. Their faces will shine with gladness, because the chosen one has arisen in those days." Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that First Enoch is on the level of scripture. It is quoted in scripture, but it is not itself scripture. I'm just showing you that the way in which the term "angel" is used and I'm Maybe I'm belaboring the point, but I've found some people to be resistant to this idea. The way in which the the term angel is used in the culture of the time, the culture of Jesus' day, certainly allows for it to refer to human spirits. This is called the semantic range or the semantic domain, the various things that the term angelos can mean. I think it is clear that the semantic range can include human spirits even though this is not how we think about the term angel today. In fact, it makes good sense that it includes human spirits because the word initially meant a messenger, regardless of their nature. You know that in the New Testament, for instance, sometimes the word angel just means a human messenger. Now, Christ's apparition would certainly fit into that semantic domain, that semantic range, because the person who has just died is acting literally as a messenger to someone that they know delivering some final message, saying one last goodbye. Now this interpretation is reinforced by how neatly it solves four otherwise very thorny questions with Acts 12. These may have occurred to you. Firstly, why does Luke describe the angel who liberates Peter as an angel of the Lord rather than as the angel of Peter? If there is a specific angel assigned to protect Peter, a guardian angel, And Luke speaks of him just a few verses later. Surely we should also expect that he will be the one to get Peter out of jail. He is Peter's guardian angel, after all. On the other hand, if the second angel, the one the disciples think is at the gate, is actually meant to be a crisis apparition, the distinction makes good sense. (coughs) Secondly, why do the disciples think that Peter's guardian angel would be knocking at the door in the first place? What possible precedent? for this is there in their minds nothing like this has happened in scripture before there's no obvious reason for Peter's guardian angel to visit them none of it makes any sense on the other hand they are busy praying for Peter because they expect him to be executed so it makes very good sense that they would assume that this has actually now happened and that he is appearing to Rhoda to say goodbye thirdly why do the disciples think that Peter's guardian angel would sound like him? What reason could there be for a spirit assigned to protect someone to have the same voice as them? This is truly bizarre if you think about it. Do they have also have the same fingerprints? Do they have the same face? What's the idea here? On the other hand, a Christ's apparition would obviously be expected to sound like the person who just died, since it is the person who just died. Fourthly, and perhaps most troublesome, Why do the disciples not immediately invite the angel in? They don't even bother to go and check. But if they thought that there was even a small chance that this was a ministering spirit, they would certainly not have acted in such a way. A guardian angel, as a fellow servant of the Lord with a greater natural status than they, because remember God made us a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.7, a guardian angel would certainly have been promptly shown the hospitality that their culture demanded, and indeed the gospel demanded. Hebrews 13:2 exhorts us: "Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares." How much more should we show love unto those that we already believe to be angels? On the other hand, if the disciples thought this was a crisis apparition, then they probably would not have investigated at first, because crisis apparitions usually cannot be seen by anyone except the particular person to whom they appear. Now, you might wonder, if Luke means to use angel in these two ways, isn't that confusing? To have it refer first to what we normally think of as an angel, an angel of the Lord, and then immediately afterward to refer to a crisis apparition, why not use a different word? Greek has the term phantasma for ghosts. Why not use that instead to make it clear? Isn't it awkward to think that one term means two different things in the same passage? Well, it is a good question, but I think actually the opposite conclusion is what we should come to. The, the possibility of confusion is deliberate. Luke is presenting a little puzzle to his audience in order to draw their attention to the humor of this situation, You might have noticed that the translation of Acts 12 that we read today was a bit idiosyncratic. It contained a lot of nows compared to other English translations. The, the word now that we read is all the same word in Greek, but most translations will try to smooth this out into normal English by alternating between translating it as now and then and sometimes even and so that it flows more like how we would tell a story in English. Now, I haven't looked into this as much as I need to, certainly not as much as I would like, but the impression that I get from reading an interlinear version of this is that Luke is using this word in this repetitive way in order to accentuate the humor of the situation. Now this happened, now this happened, now this happened, it's like escalating. Luke is actually a master of dry humor. He is hilarious if you understand what to look for. And if you just translate the nouns the way that he wrote them, I think in English it comes across more obviously how he uses them to build up the comedic effect. The fact is, this passage is meant to be funny. And Luke uses the double meaning of angelos and angel to intensify the dramatic irony. Notice that the passage is broken into two. Luke unifies them with this common link of the angel. In the first part, Peter thinks the angel is not real, but it's rather a vision. In the second part, the disciples think Peter is not real, but is rather a vision of an angel. So what does this all have to do with Matthew 18, though? If we are reading Acts correctly here, and I think there is no other plausible way to read it then this actually gives us insights into Matthew 18 that have important pastoral and soteriological and even esch- eschatological implications. See that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that their angels in the heavens do continually behold the face of my Father who is in the heavens. Here, the angels would no longer be guardian angels, but rather the spirits of deceased children. Jesus is speaking of them as a class. He's saying not to despise them, because God counts these kinds of children worthy of coming into his presence. In fact, the way that Jesus uses the word angel here, and especially putting them into the presence of God, the way that he uses the term angel is presumably deliberate in order to compare them with and to place them on the same level as, in terms of importance at least, angels like Gabriel. Remember when Gabriel comes to Zechariah to tell him that his wife Elizabeth will bear a son, what does he say when Zechariah questions him? Zechariah is like, I'm not sure about this, Gabriel, can you... He you help me out here? And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands before God. And I was sent to speak unto thee and to bring thee these good tidings. And he strikes Zechariah dumb for daring to question him. Do not despise these little ones, Jesus tells his disciples, any more than you would despise Gabriel himself. They both stand before the face of God. Now, aside from the obvious pastoral benefit of being able to tell a grieving parent that the children of God's people go directly into his presence when they die, I myself have an angel in heaven, this interpretation has two exegetical benefits also. Firstly, it harmonizes with a known phenomenon in people's experience, which is crisis apparitions, or ghosts essentially, which is in turn mentioned many times in the Bible and presupposed by the biblical authors. Think about Matthew 14, 26, where Jesus walks to the disciples across the water and they are terrified because they assume it is a ghost. Or Luke 24, when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection and they again think that they are seeing a ghost, a crisis apparition, and he has to say to them, no, touch me, see, ghosts have no substance. He doesn't say, no, ghosts aren't real. He says, I'm not a ghost, check and see. Or think of 1 Samuel 28.15, when the witch of Endor raises the spirit of Samuel, who then speaks to Saul. Ghosts are something that the Bible mentions quite a few times, and it in no way denies their existence. But on the other hand, the concept of guardian angels, as we think of them, was non-existent in their thought world and do not appear in Scripture. Secondly, an exegetical benefit is... It explains how the angels that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 can be perpetually before the throne of God. This just helps us solve a a problem with the passage if we interpret it as guardian angels. The problem becomes, how can these angels be always seeing God's face rather than being here on earth if their job is actually protecting children here on earth? This is very difficult to explain if they're guardian angels because although we don't know much about the uh, geography of the spiritual world, To see God's face is a metaphor for being in his direct immediate presence. that is, what Gabriel is conveying to Zechariah. Zechariah's questioning him is offensive, because Gabriel is no mere angel, he is one of the angels closest to God, who stands always before him. So it's pretty difficult to understand how such an angel could constantly be here, watching over children, if he is also there, standing before God. But of course... If these angels are actually the spirits of the children themselves, then what Jesus is saying makes straightforward sense. What then shall we say? Looking at the broad strokes of a passage, comparing Scripture with Scripture, rather than focusing on the standard definitions of words, helps us to see important things sometimes. It helps to open our eyes to see things God wants to teach us, which our own frameworks, our own presuppositions about the meaning of words can otherwise blind us to. When we compare Matthew 18 and Acts 12 with each other, and with other parts of Scripture, and with common human experience, we can deduce not that there exist guardian angels, as people today imagine, but rather that there exist after death. The spirits of people who can both appear to others at times and when they are covenant children go directly into the presence of God. It teaches us about the tenderness and kindness of God, both to those left behind when someone they love dies and especially to children. Do all children go into his presence when they die? I I don't know. I wouldn't care to speculate on that. The children Jesus is talking about are children of the covenant, but it wouldn't surprise me if God were that kind, even to the children of unbelievers. And given the infant mortality rate of the ancient world, which was sometimes as high as 75%, so only one in four of your children would survive to adulthood, and the mortality, of the, uh, mortality rate of the modern world, thanks to abortion, this has significant implications for passages. Um, like, for instance, if we read Revelation 7, 9-10, After these things I saw, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number out of every nation and of all tribes and tongues and peoples, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, arrayed in white robes and palms in their hands, and they cry with a great voice, saying, Salvation unto our God, who sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb. Perhaps this great multitude contains many small ones." As we return to John next week, we will see how this hermeneutical method becomes important for understanding some of the most fundamental and overarching concepts in his gospel. For now, let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, and please bless it to us. Help us to understand it, plant it deep in us, and water it with your spirit so that it will grow. Help us to appreciate you more through the depth and complexity of what we learn. Help us to learn to read what you have given us more deeply. But thank you also that what you have given us is so easy to understand in so many ways when it could be so hard. Please be with us as we go into the world and help us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.